Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going? Oh, it's good. It's good. I it, it's been a it's been a really nerd filled week, and I'm excited to share with you throughout the show uh, some of the cool projects I've taken on and some of the things some of the trouble I've gotten myself into, Steve. Oh, what kind of trouble is that? Well, we're gonna get into it. It's it, it's a doozy. I wanted to start by this. People have been writing in and they're asking, hey, how do I participate in the show? If I'm not able to call in and I want to participate over something like Mumble, how do we do that? And so the answer is we've actually written this up for you at docs.mindrepmedia.com slash Mumble. And so we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can find the show notes every week at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And in there, you'll find a link to our doc site. Now, the doc site for Mumble, it will walk you through getting Mumble set up. Pretty easy. It's probably available in your repo, and you just really need to add the Mumble server, uh, which is mumble.mindrip1.com. We use everything else as essentially default, but it, the guide will walk you through step by step. And then once you've done that, you'll join the chat room at geeklab.ninja. You can join right in your web browser, or you can join via Matrix, pound uh, uh, geeklab in... Uh, on colon Linux Delta, and that will take you into uh, the chat room. And so from there, you can use hashtag mumble and suggest your question, and one of our mods will pull you in. They'll check your audio just to make sure that we can hear you and you can hear us and all those sorts of things. And then they'll hand it off to Steve and I, and you'll be on the show. So if you'd like to do that, we highly encourage you to do that. One of the nice things about doing it through Mumble is threefold. One is it sounds really good. So we're able to have a two-way dialogue and we can actually engage in a conversation rather than just kind of a one-way. There's a lot of times Steve and I will get a question and then we kind of spin our wheels trying to figure out what you what you mean exactly. And so the nice thing about uh, uh, nice thing about uh, Mumble is that it's an open source chat client and so it's it's funny to me when i first started ask noah show in in 2017 i did a bunch of research and looking into the best broadcast technology that was available and how professionals all over the country um conducted broadcast and we built a studio based on those standards and what's funny is those standards have continued to evolve in the broadcast world to support things like opus and now opus is available largely uh in most if not all open source clients and that's kind of what the world has standardized on and open source was there first. And so mumble is the easiest way to do that. So we invite you to participate like that. We'll head into feedback. I want to start with a feedback. Uh, so this is in response to a listener that wrote in a few weeks ago and said, Hey, I'm wanting to take a web page and I want to convert it into a PDF. So Ziggy, Samir, George, Chris, Jordan, and Greg all wrote in and they all had ideas. I We're not going to spend a ton of time on all of these. We'll have them linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So if you want to go look through each individual suggestion, we invite you to do so. Um, but just kind of kind of running through these. So there's a add-on for Mozilla Firefox called Single File. You might check that out. Snapcraft has something uh, called uh, Monolith, which we'll have linked for you. 
archive box came in a number of times. We are going to spend a little bit of time on that. Wallabag was a suggestion. Quick EMU was a suggestion. Uh, Native Filer was a suggestion. HT Track was a suggestion. So all of those will have link for you. The one I want to spend a little bit of time on is Archivebox. And the reason I want to spend a little bit of time on Archivebox is twofold. The first is there were a lot of you that recommended this particular solution. And also it basically fits like a glove to what the original listener was asking for. So the goal of Archivebox, an open source self-hosted web archiving that takes a URL, browser history, bookmarks, etc., and can generate or save HTML, JavaScript, PDF, media, and more. You can feed it URLs one at a time, or you can schedule regular imports from a browser bookmark history, feeds, RSS, bookmark services, pocket, pinboard. Um, it saves the snapshots as URLs that you fed in several formats. So you can export out as HTML, PDF, PNG, screenshots, WARC, uh, a wide variety of ways to save uh, the web page, and of course, the entire thing top to bottom is open source. So we'd recommend you check that out. You can learn more at archivebox.io. Steve, did you look at this or play with this at all? I didn't really play with it because as we talked about, I didn't. I still don't really have much of a need to archive websites. Um, I Partly is because I, I maintain my own wiki. And so in the event that there's something really interesting that I want to capture, I toss it in one of my wikis. Yeah, and I, I want to circle back to that because I want to dig into that a little bit more with you. Are you, as you move forward, are you still using Confluence or are these days everything, the new stuff is going into Wiki.js? Most of my new stuff is going into Wiki.js. It depends what it is. Um, I have a good system going on in Confluence in terms of the hierarchy. So if it's like home automation, it's going into Confluence because I have, you know, that's where all the structure that everybody expects to like my wife wants to know what's happening in Home Assistant or whatever, it's all there. But if it's net new stuff, all the net new stuff is going in WikiJS. I love that, and I, I made the I made the switch over to WikiJS, and so I, I want to dig in and chat with you more about that as the show progresses. Our next email comes in from James. James writes in and says, "Hi there. I've also had issues trying to buy Sats. UK banks don't allow it. Fountain Podcast." Uh, app 6.0 allows you to buy sats for easily bank transferring and not having to go via a long broken process so um steve i believe this is in in response to podcasting 2.0 the discussion that you brought up trying to support podcasters yeah yep this was a couple of weeks ago when i was i had a mini rant on man it'd really be nice if this was easier for me it turns out other people are having problems as well. So if you have, you know, if you have experience with this and it's something that you say, hey, this would be a good way that, you know, I know of an easy way to participate in funding podcasters or maybe there's something else altogether. I'd be interested in hearing from you. Uh, would, would love to have that conversation. Uh, emailer writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. My router and Internet base is in my basement, but... I'd like to run better hardware or Ethernet up to my office room without having to rip out the walls apart and running through the air ducts. Doesn't seem too plausible. In the air ducts room, don't go straight to the basement. I no longer have cable TV, but all the rooms have coax running to them, and I was wondering about running through the same coax. Do you know of any reliable way to run or convert RJ45 Ethernet to coax and then back? Thank you and Steve for all the time that you guys put towards the Linux and open source community. You guys are a great inspiration. By the way, we met at Ohio Linux Fest in 2014 along with JT and had a lost, discuss a lost discussion regarding AltaSpeed and how you started. Chris Carley. So, Steve, what would you do if you woke up in Chris's shoes and you were looking to get some Ethernet run over coax? 
So there is an adapter out there called a Mocha adapter, which is a, a multimedia over coax alliance. And this is a, it's like a standard for how you transfer different signals over coax. And you can go and take a look. You can find the ethernet pairs for the Mocha um, online. They're a little bit pricey, but I mean, when you're talking about not having to run wires and all of the hassle for it, um, you know, $100 a pair for, for a decent one, like a decent set of the Mocha adapters is reasonable considering you're not going to rip open your walls or have to rerun cable and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 100%. So I might take a slightly different approach here. Now, I admit that Steve's is the most straightforward professional way to do this. Okay. So if you want just a, I want a way to drop something in and I want it to just work, that's definitely the way to go. If it were my house, and I woke up in your shoes and I had this coax cable all over the place and I really wanted ethernet all over the place. Personally, what I would do is I would use the coax as pull string and I would try to pull cat five up. Now there are a number of pitfalls that can bite you doing this. Okay. The first is if they scrap the cable at all is pretty much a done deal. Your, your chances of being able to fish or pull a second run through uh, cable straps is slim to none. So I wouldn't, I, I, it could go bad really quickly. So I'll just tell you that up front. That said, I have had a number of houses and businesses where we get in and they have these cable run. And especially with stuff like cable TV, electricians, because of electrical code, will strap every few feet. Low volt guys, it's a mixed bag how much pride they take in their work. And a lot of people, particularly when they're running stuff like coax, it's shove it through the wall holes, get it out where you need it, call it a day. And that's pretty much good enough. Um, And we run into that a lot. And certainly if you have, um, you know, contractors and such that are building up houses, if they're if they're 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 throwing houses up right and left, they oftentimes won't strap a lot of the low volt stuff. And so you can just use it as pull string and pull actual Ethernet. The reason that I like pulling Ethernet over using the coax is a couple of things. So the first is in order for to effectively use the Mocha adapters, you really need to have good quality coax. And so you're looking for something like RG6, which is a quad shielded coax. If you have older coax, like your house was built in the early 90s uh, or even the 80s, and it doesn't have quad shielded coax, your chances of actually having that mo- those Mocha adapters work reliably diminish. Um, because the quality of the cable isn't there and it lets in a lot of interference. And so those, for, for, for those reasons, I would probably try to get away from the coax and get to an actual Cat6 run if you can. The other thing you might consider is it, it, even if your house has closed caps, what I mean by that is all of the sheetrock is up. It doesn't mean you can't fish wire. It just means you have to be a little bit more creative in how you do it. And so you can take like a coat hanger and unbend it and cut a tiny little hole in the wall and stick the coat hanger into the wall and then go at the bottom of your, you know, your basement and cut a little hole in the wall and and use like what they call a flex bit or a feeler bit. And essentially what it is, is it's a drill bit on the end of like a six foot uh, metal flexible rod. And so you can cut a tiny little hole in the wall. You can stick the flex bit into the wall and up until you hit the, the, the plate of your, of your, of your first floor, your main floor. And as long as you know that your, your, your uh, flex bit is in the wall, you can rest assured that you're likely to come out in the wall upstairs, although it's not guaranteed. And, you drill up and you'll come through the plate and come into the wall upstairs. Then you take the coat hanger that we talked about and you can hook onto either the drill bit or if you push the, the bit far enough up, you can pull the the uh, the Cat 6 cable into the wall and then you can fish it the rest of the way with 
a uh, with the coat hanger. I get it. It depends on the layout of your house, all of those sorts of things. But I just I wouldn't entirely write off being able to fish wire where you need it. But if you're looking for the easy drop-in solution, uh, Moco adapter is definitely the way to go. And oh, by the way, that is really what uh, if you called your cable TV company or those sorts of things. Um, they're all using Mocha adapters. In fact, if you, a lot of ISPs now are coming in and saying, "Hey, we're going to repurpose the uh, the coax that's in the wall to do uh, to do network." So you have to be a little bit careful if you're going to use the drill bit, the flexible drill bit. Um, I have found at least one wall in my house where it didn't go all the way to the ceiling. So like it went up and initially, I don't know if the room was unfinished or they meant to do a drop ceiling or whatever it was, but essentially there was, uh, I don't know, a half a meter between the top of the wall and where the next floor was. Mm. And the reason why this is important is because they ran the electrical wire along the top of the wall. So you could have, you could have just put, you know, your drill bit right through a wire if they, if someone took a kind of a lazy route to, to running wires around in your area. Yeah. The, so the best thing to do there is if you take even like a stud finder, most modern stud finders will have a voltage detection on it and you can, you can swipe the wall and you should be able to find if there are any electric wires. And actually, no matter what you're doing, if you're doing pull string, if you're doing a feeler, but anything you're doing, if you're working inside the walls, you definitely want to take a, a gander to see where any potential electrical wires are. And you absolutely would want to stay away from those. That'll be, that could potentially be a real bad day. Yeah, it could. It's one of those things like in this case, though, you'd have to know that the stud was there. You know what I mean? Because it was the wall stopped about, like I said, about a half meter from the ceiling. But then the drywall went all the way up. Mm, so mm -hmm. like you, there was no clear way for me to know ahead of time that, hey, this is this frame doesn't go all the way up. Sure. And so you wouldn't know that the stud was down where it was. Text miss or not text miss. Jeez. Tells you <laughs> what I do for a living. Uh, um, chat room. Uh, Tiny asks in the chat room, how do you stop the coax cable from falling off the cable when you repull it? I've had bad luck with Cat6 falling off the coax cable. So the way you do it is actually, it's a two-part process. So part one is you use something called pull string. And the reason that you use pull string is, is twofold. The first is it does not tear. It, you can pull, the tensile strength of pull string is is high. And so there's a special kind of knot that you can use. You essentially wrap it around the cable and it's, it would be very difficult for me to describe verbally, but you, you tie the pull string around the cable and, and pull it back so that as tension is pulling on the cable, the knot gets tighter. That's the general idea. And so you'll make maybe three of those loops. So the pull string is attached to the cable. And then what you do is you pull on the coax cable and you can rip on it pretty hard because the pull string is small, is a smaller diameter than the coax. And because we have our special knots, it doesn't really matter how hard you pull on it. The knots are unlikely to slide off the end of the coax. And if you want to be even more sure about it, you could you know put some tape on there. But again, then you're starting to build back up the diameter. Once you've pulled the coax out, and now you should have a pull string, a thin uh, string specifically designed for pulling wire. Now you can go back and tie your Cat 6 and you can pull that back on and you, you pull it the rest of the way. But that, that, that would be the way to keep the Cat 6 from pulling off. The problem with trying to tie the Cat 6 directly to the coax is the only real way to adhere those two things together is tape. And if you pull any sort of any sort of real uh, tension on, on the tape, the tape's either going to rip or the cable's going to slide out of the tape because you're just not going to get enough compression on the tape to adhere those two together well. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of January 23rd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. 
the Netrunner team has released Netrunner 23, codenamed Vaporwave. It's based on Debian 11 Bullseye and ships with KDE 5.20.5. Firefox 109 has been released, and Firefox 110 will add the ability to import settings from other web browsers like Opera and Vivaldi. In security news, upon launching the Trellix Advanced Research Center in September, the cybersecurity researchers at the organization announced that an estimated 350,000 open-source projects were at risk due to CVE 2007-4559, which is a vulnerability that has resided in Python for over 15 years. Following the discovery of that vulnerability, Trellix has managed to patch over 61,000 of the ventures affected. Kinsing is an old-school Linux-Unix executable link format malware written in Go. Given a chance, it runs a crypto miner and attempts to spread itself to other containers and hosts. Over the years, it has been used in attacks against Docker, Rails, and SaltStack, and now its developers are targeting Kubernetes. Suspected Chinese hackers are exploiting a recently disclosed SSL VPN vulnerability in Fortinet devices, targeting victims with a new custom Linux malware called Bold Move. And based on analysis by researchers at Atlas VPN, the Linux threat landscape is evolving. It shows attackers increasingly seeing Linux as a worthwhile target. According to the report, the Atlas VPN team has claimed that new Linux malware threat has hit record numbers in 2022, increasing by 50% to 1.9 million for the year. In other news, the Linux Foundation has revealed intentions to create an open-source metaverse. The aptly called Open Metaverse Foundation has been divided into a number of organizations that it refers to as foundational interest groups, each of which is intended to concentrate on a distinct subject. They encompass, among other things, transactions, virtual environments, simulations, networking, security, and privacy, as well as law and policy. And the Fight for the Future organization has released an open letter asking for U.S. legislators to protect privacy, personal data, and the security of the Internet. The open letter has been signed by Proton, the Tor Project, the Free Software Foundation, Tutanota, and a bunch of privacy-focused blockchain organizations. Thank you, JT. I want to talk a little bit about a personal project that I've been working on in my house. So the idea, my backup strategy previously was the following. I had my primary storage server and I have my primary virtual host that sits in my home and the virtual host backs all of its QCOW2 images up to the file server and then the file server backs up to a backup server that sits in the house. And I have an offsite backup at an undisclosed location that I take a case full of a bunch of hard drives and bring it into the home and use it to sync up from the backup server. And that's been working for years and it's been my backup strategy and it's never really failed me. And so everything has been fine. But it does occur to me that in order for that to work, I have to bring the offsite backup on site, meaning that all of the data and all of the devices are all in one room at one time on one day. Now, not for very long, just long enough to complete the backup, but still, it kind of makes me nervous. So I started to investigate the idea of how could I split this up and make it a little uh, more uh, robust. And so I started looking at, okay, I really would, what I would really like to do is primary server stays at home, backup server actually makes the trek back and forth between the primary server and the offsite backup. So I started to look, what would it take to build a small, tiny little server? And I couldn't really land on anything that I was really excited about. Then I came across the HP MicroLiant Gen 10 microserver. This thing is a tiny little 10-inch cube with a 200-watt power supply and capable of supporting up to 32 gigs of RAM. So 
I'm a cheapskate and I don't like buying anything new. And so I watched and watched and watched and watched and watched until I finally found some poor auction on eBay that wasn't taking a lot of bids and ended up winning the thing for 200 bucks. Didn't come with any drives, but the way that this thing is designed is nothing short of brilliant. So there are four 3.5 inch drive base in the front. And at the top of the server, there is a one, there's one slot for a, a 2.5 inch SSD. And so what I did was I put a one terabyte SSD in the SSD slot on top. And then I put 12 terabyte disks in the front bay and created a ZFS pool. I put Ubuntu on the SSD and installed a ZFS on Linux onto uh, this little HP ProLand Pro server. Imported my ZFS pool, did my ZFS send, sunk all the data back up, works great. And I thought this is fantastic. And oh, by the way, one of the things that I think is particularly cool about the design of this, instead of having drive caddies like a lot of servers do, the way that they opted to do it is they have little screws. When you take the front cover off, there's a bunch of little screws um, all the way across the top of the server. And you take those screws out and put them into the drive, and then the drive itself latches into little hooks that are built into the, the front of the server. And so when you push on the little button, it ejects the drive out almost like a cartridge, or you can shove it back in. But everything you need to install the drives is built right into the front of the server, which is pretty fantastic. So I get everything up and running, and then I start thinking to myself, self, since you have Ubuntu, and you have a, a nice, reliable, big pool of storage underneath, but it's not TrueNAS, it's not, you know, locked to what they tell you you can do and can't do, what would stop me from installing Libvirt? Which, of course, the answer to which is nothing. So I did. I installed Libvirt, and then I thought, well, I'm going to slide some VMs over here and see if it works. And wouldn't you know it, a few hours later, my entire house went from running on a 42U rack with big traditional 2U servers to this tiny little 10-inch cube but had all the same things that I had at my house. I still have a file server. I still have, um, you know, my home assistant. They still have my home. All of the things that would be running in, in my home on various different pieces of hardware were running on this tiny little 10-inch cube. And I started thinking to myself, you know, this is really... Uh, awesome if you're a person that's looking to get into servers and trying to look at, you know, what's the first server I look at? We typically have recommended, hey, look at something like a Dell Optiplex or, you know, a, a Dell Precision, a, a small little desktop computer that you can repurpose as a server. And you could certainly do that. And you'll certainly get uh, a lot of uh, performance out of those things. But this tiny little HP server does a really great job. And it's an actual server platform, which is kind of nice. So, I uh, I did what I had to do to get an electrical outlet and a Cat6 jack up next to the coat closet next to my front door. And that HP ProLiant server uh, will eventually live inside of the top shelf of this coat closet next to my front door. And so the idea is, even if my data center, also known as my wife's laundry room, ever erupts into flames or if there's ever a fire in the house, I... As I'm walking out the front door, I can just reach up into this coat closet, grab this little 10-inch cube, and take it with me. Additionally, when I go camping or when I'm living in an RV or when I'm out doing stuff, I can take this little 10-inch cube and run a, run, a, run a ZFS end, and all of my data and all of my house infrastructure just kind of comes out the front door with me, which is, I just think, really fantastic. And it can function as a complete standalone server. Additionally, it meets my original intended goal of being able to migrate this little box from my home over to my offsite backup location, and I can run a backup and dump all of the data from this little server over to the offsite backup. And now, anytime it's running the backup at the offsite backup, 
the primary server is still at my home and anytime it's every night when it's dumping from the primary server over to the backup server, the offsite data remains at its offsite location. So never or all three places of the data all in one place at one time. And so I would highly encourage you if you're if you're one of the people that have asked and written written into the show or you've listened and thought, eh, I really want, kind of want to get into self-hosting and stuff like that. I have very little tolerance these days. You know, when you go and do something every day for a living and my job is to go and bring uh, managed services to businesses and I have to keep it up and running for them, you better believe when I come home, I want everything to just work. And so I've invested a lot of money, time and effort into systems that just works. I can walk in and turn on the TV and everything just works the way I expect it to. I, I never would have really anticipated that you could get away with a few hundred dollars running on a tiny little 10 inch, $200 or 200 watt box that I would be able to, to, to run the necessary things to be able to keep my house running, but alas, I can. Now, in the process of setting this up, I came across a write-up from Jason Rose, who has a absolutely fantastic write-up on OpenZFS. He walks you through every single little piece of the vernacular of the components used to build OpenZFS and then setting everything up and designing it the way that you want. Um, it's just a ripping good read. And so if you want a nice introduction to OpenZFS, if you've heard us talk about ZFS, if you listen to the storage segment that we did last week with 45 drives and thought to yourself, self, I want to learn more about that ZFS thing. It sounds pretty cool. I highly recommend you check out uh, Jason Rose's write-up on ZFS. We'll have that link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Also came across my radar as I was doing this. So I came up with this monolithic box that, you know, it's running Ubuntu as the operating system, runs ZFS underneath as a storage, and then running a hypervisor to do all of the VMs. And I started looking around into ZFS on Ubuntu, and I came across a number of things talking about ZSYS being dropped from Ubuntu because of some issues with ZFS on root. And the more I dug and the more I dug, it would appear that Ubuntu is going to drop Zesis, uh, and they were are going to do that in 2204, and for whatever reason it didn't happen, and so it's slated to happen down the road. Now Zesis, to be clear, is the uh, the the module that allows you to run ZFS on root. I can live without that, but I cannot live without ZFS Linux being rolled into the kernel. And currently, Ubuntu is the only distribution I'm aware of that rolls ZFS into the kernel, so it just works. And if you're not doing that and you're doing it with something like Fedora, you're using a DKMS module, which means every time you update, if ZFS is lagging behind Linux kernel, which it almost always does, you have breakage. And so I absolutely experienced that at a client site and it was not pretty. It was not fun. It was not enjoyable. And so I I got really happy this week as I got all of this set up and then my hopes were kind of crushed and I got really kind of disappointed. Steve, are you still running ZFS on Ubuntu? Yep. There's, I don't really see any problems with this because ZSYS um, and ZFS on root really doesn't affect the vast majority of people. Agreed. People who are running the ZFS stuff are doing it for data protection and less for boot environment, at least as far as, uh, you know, Ubuntu is concerned. Right. Do you see any, do you have any reason to suspect that if ZSYS is dropped, that their priorities, Canonical's priorities are shifting and they may eventually pull ZFS from their their custom kernel? No, I don't think so. I think I don't. I have literally no insight into uh, how Canonical is working. But what I would imagine is they did some sort of heuristics to look at it and say, well, you know what? The the lift to do this boot environment thing 
versus the demand and the excitement that we're seeing around it is mm. so minuscule that uh, it's not worth our efforts and we'll, we'll refocus somewhere else. Yeah, and to be clear, I don't care about ZFS on route so much. I mean, it's great. If I really cared about if I really cared about being able to roll back and do all of the things on one box, maybe I would. But these days I'm going the exact opposite. I don't care about rolling back. I don't even care about fixing problems. These days it's blow the mach- blow the pe- blow that piece of cattle away, get a new piece of cattle, point an Ansible r- playbook at it, wait for it to come back up, carry on with my day. And that actually segues real nice into my Wiki.js migration. So, Steve, I kind of wanted to give you an update of where I'm at with this. So, I, again, I moved from MediaWiki over to Wiki.js, and it's been kind of a process for me because I've been using MediaWiki for so long, and I was very comfortable with it. Overall, it's going, it's going great. I love the interface of Wiki.js. I enjoy that everything is in containers, so just kind of bringing everything full circle. Wiki.js is designed, if you look at their installation instructions, they're very much designed with this idea of treating everything like cattle and not like a sacred pet. They, when you look at how do I back this up and how do I restore, they assume that you're going to start all over and spin an entirely new stack up of Wiki.js, and then we just slide the data over that we exported from this other machine. So there's zero thing you need in the way of configuration files or setup or any of that stuff, it all just essentially uh, moves over with with the database. And so played with that a little bit. I'm really happy with the way that that's set up. The other thing is I love the ability to be able to uh, switch between browsing files and the publish mode. So in, in MediaWiki, for example, unless you create a link, there's no way to find, or, or you know what the URL to the page is, there's no way to find that specific page, no way through the UI. Um, there's a special page called All Pages that you can click on that shows every page on the entire wiki, but that's that that can get obnoxious pretty quick too. Um, with Wiki.js, there's actually like a browse mode that turns it almost, the best way I can explain it is like a file browser in your web in your web browser, a file manager in your web browser. And when you click on browse, it turns it into the file hierarchy or folder hierarchy, uh, and you can see the actual markdown files that are there. Now, they're just entries in a database on the back end, but it presents it as if they're little files. Then you can switch to, you know, I don't know what the technical name is, but like a published mode where it's only going to show the navigation bar that you've configured. It's only going to show the links. And then it functions very much like Wikimedia from that point on. Um, so, so, so that part of it, I really like. A couple of things I didn't like. There's this page info thing. Have you seen this, Steve, on the left-hand side where it tells you like the last person that edited it and the last time and stuff like that? But it takes up like a third of my page real estate. And so far as I can find, there's no way to turn that off. That's actually not true. So they've built it. So I will give you, there's no little slider. Okay. Okay. You're right about that. But if you go to your theme setting, I will, will kind of describe, I'll try my best to describe this for you live. So if you go to the administration tab and you go to themes, okay. Under themes, there's both CSS override as well as HTML injection. And Ah. so if you look, someone's already figured out how to do this for you. Okay. Um, and you just apply it to your current theme. So you can you can make Wiki.js do whatever you like. I I get the impression it's kind of similar to the early days of GNOME with their extensions, where it's just mm-hmm. kind of like hacking in the the CSS and the JavaScript that um, over top of it. But it's that. got it built right into this. Yeah, I mean, it would be ideal if there was a little toggle bump. I can totally deal with just overriding CSS, or I would just have to know what code to inject there or what to uh, what to type in. But I'm I'm assuming that's a quick Google search for me. 
Yeah, I imagine that it should be. Um, at some point, I had figured that out, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it broke during one of my upgrades, and I never went back to it because, yeah, you're right, it's annoying. But I just kind of learned to live with it on a 32-inch monitor. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of us that have a 32-inch monitor, for those of us that have a 13-inch laptop, it's it's uh, substantially more obnoxious. But no, I, it, it really, though, it's a small thing. And truthfully, it doesn't obstruct the ability to read the text or anything like that. So it, it's fine. The other thing that I noted, uh, that I missed from Wikimedia is there was a option for recent pages. And where I use that constantly was my wiki is essentially my offline way to explore life. It's like like you were talking about at the beginning of the program. Oh, I don't use that because once I find something I need, I just, I copy the information I need, I dump it into my own space, and then from there on, I'm referencing it in my own world. I mean, I, I don't know where it exists in the real world. I reference it in my world. And I, I live the exact same way. I do the exact same thing. And so, as part of that, there's multiple times I will come back and I'll be like, oh, just like four or five days ago, I was working on that. I remember, but I don't remember where I saved it or what document I was working on that I pasted that in. Or, and I would click on recent and look through it. Oh, yeah, that's the one. So far as I can find, there isn't a pages you've recently visited in Wiki.js. And I kind of miss that feature. So there is. Uh, if you click on the if you click on the little cog, right? So on the top right hand corner, there's your account, and then there's the little cog. Okay. The very first thing it does is drop you into a dashboard, and you can see recent pages. And I'm looking at the top ten recent pages in my uh, thing in my wiki. Okay. You've checked off two of my issues. Here's my third one. Let's see if let's see if we can go three for three. There was an option in MediaWiki for a random page, and this is admittedly fairly esoteric. I completely understand why I might be one of the five human beings on planet Earth that wants something like this. But occasionally, I will sit down in my basement and I will say to myself, I'm looking for a project. I want a tech project or I want something to dig into or nerdy. What do I want to do? And I would sit there and instead of trying to like browse through stuff, I would just click on random until something piqued my interest and be like, yeah, that looks like fun. I'm going to go play with that. And it just, it very much marries my naturally ADD personality and I'm missing my random page. Can you help me there? Uh, I have no idea. I didn't even know this was a thing in any wiki software. Yeah, so. Like I said, I fully admit <laughs> there's how many people say, you know what I really want? I want you to go to a random page. Nothing of any sort of organization, nothing that I've specified. I just pick a random one and throw random information in my face. That's what I want. I recognize there's like three there's like three other human beings on planet Earth that think that that's useful, and I just happen to be one of them. So I, I can deal with that. Then my, my last thing, and I admit that this might be an extension problem with Dark Reader because I've not tried it on just a normal uh, computer, for lack of a better way to say that. But when I go from one page to the other, I have Dark Theme enabled on in wiki.js and when i go from one page to the other it'll like it'll flash white for a second and then it'll go to the next page and to be honest with you steve i wouldn't i maybe not wouldn't have even noticed it or cared but my wife pointed it out and once she pointed it out it's like it's one of those things i can't unsee huh that's interesting i uh i also never really noticed it uh until you pointed out just now it, does, <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time for me right. but uh it does it definitely does happen that's interesting i didn't never notice that before see and now i pointed it out you'll never be able to unsee it past few days, dozens of tech companies have filed briefs in support of Google in a Supreme Court case that's testing the online's platform for liability for recommended consent. 
or content, excuse me. Obvious stakeholders like Meta, Twitter, alongside other popular platforms like Craigslist, Etsy, Wikipedia, Roblox, and TripAdvisor urged the court to uphold Section 230 immunity in cases of for risk mudding the path of users that rely on to connect with each other and discover information online. So a quick recap of what Section 230 is for those of you that haven't been following along. Section 230 is immunity for the host of a particular site. So for example, when we if I, we spin up a site abc.com, you and you go to that site, the content on that site is published by us and so I become responsible for the content I put on there. But if I make a site called xyz.com and that site is you can go post information on the site as a user, I the site's operator am not held responsible for the stuff that you the user post on my site. You with me so far? So this constantly comes back into question because regulators would love nothing more than to pin the onus of responsibility on the site's operator, thereby being able to exert pressure on them to promote certain content or remove certain content or block certain content at the moment, their hands are kind of tied from doing that because of Section 230. And so it's back in court again this time. Really, the argument is over these large uh, tech companies because the argument is that they have too much power and they decide what users can see and what users can't see. And I think both I guess I'll ask you, Steve, are you of the opinion that, uh, you know, you have a right to post on Facebook or Twitter or any of that? Or do you take the opinion that, hey, it's their platform, they it's their, you know, it's their Sundance, whatever they want to do, uh, we boogie the way they tell us to boogie, otherwise we take off. If you don't pay for it, you don't have much. Uh, you don't have many legs to stand on. That's my belief. Okay, so I'm I'm in agreement with you there. So as these companies are testifying in in court, it's interesting that Reddit comes to the the forefront of the discussion. And the reason is, unlike other companies that hire content moderators, the content moderation that happens in Reddit is what driven by people who are just users of the platform, and so they're not. Uh, they're 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 people, and they're they're part of of the community. And so the idea here is, some people go and they post poor things or bad things or they you know malicious things, and these are trolls. And they're individuals; they don't get paid to do this. They don't they don't have an agenda to do this. I mean, I'm sure somebody does, but they don't have they don't have a, have a shared agenda of how to moderate content. Every little community has its own community moderators and they all do it just a little bit differently. And so the idea is if you were to take Section 230 out, well, who's responsible for that? Because Reddit doesn't choose what gets posted on the sites. The moderators do. So if the onus is always going to be with the last person that has a say of what's on the site, then do moderators become responsible for the content that users post? And if they don't pull it off fast enough, are they held responsible? That argument seemed to hold a lot of weight, not just with the court, but with people that are following and listening to the case. And, uh, quote, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act famously protects Internet platforms from liability. Yet what's missing from the discussion is that it crucially protects Internet users, everyday people, when they participate in moderation, like removing unwanted content from their communities or users upvoting or downvoting posts. Reddit argues in the brief that such frivolous lawsuits that have been lobbied against Reddit users and the company in the past and that Section 230 protections have historically given them consistency to allow Reddit users to quickly and inexpensively avoid litigation. The Google case raised by the family of a woman killed in, in a Paris bistro in a 2015 ISIS attack 
uh, because ISIS relied on YouTube to recruit her before the attack. The family sued to hold Google liable for allegedly aiding and abetting the terrorist. A Google sports spokesman linked to ARS uh, to a statement saying that a decision undermining Section 230 would make websites either remove potentially controversial material or shut their eyes to objectionable content to avoid knowledge of it altogether. You would be left with a choice between overtly curated mainstream sites or fringe sites flooded with objectionable content. So this is a really, really interesting case that is that is working its way through the legal system right now and has massive, massive implications for the way that we conduct business online. Steve, have you been following this at all or do you have any thoughts on it? I mean, I do. I catch this stuff definitely coming across from some of my news sources and Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this. On one hand, I think that if you are going to be, if you're going to take editorial powers and you're going to say, well, this is allowed because, or this isn't allowed because, that kind of makes you an editor. And so I I tend to think that you probably should be held reliable for it. Like you're either, you're either taking mm, responsibility for, the the stuff that's on the platform or you're mm-hmm. not right and uh, to me it's kind of binary yeah notwithstanding you know some laws like because there are some like defamation laws and stuff like that that um, are quite obviously crossing the line like if you're in a place like canada they they have some pretty stringent uh, anti-hate laws and stuff like that but notwithstanding that you're either uh you're either following the law and being a like a platform or you're following the law and you're being a, like an editor. Right. Right. So I, it, it, I, I admit that it is a challenging question to answer and that there are, there, there's no easy answer. There are problems on both sides of the argument for sure. There are, but I, I really like the idea of section two thirty. I think it, I think it protects a tremendous amount of internet freedom. And I think it, it really stands alongside the idea of protecting free speech and the ability for people to promote the content they want to promote. And again, if you don't like it, don't go there. Don't visit the website. You don't, there's nobody, no law saying you have to visit a website. There's no law saying that you have to, to, to be on a particular platform. There's no law protecting your right to be on any particular platform. So you can go elsewhere. You don't like YouTube, go to Odyssey. You don't like Odyssey, go to Rumble. You don't like Rumble, host your, I mean, there's, there's so many different things available to you these days. I, I, I just, I struggle to, to support the idea of using the courts to rein this in because this is one of those things is once you get some of these legal opinions that lock something down, it's not going to go the other way. We're not going to reintroduce freedoms back to the internet. And so I will carefully, carefully, carefully follow this case. We'll continue to keep you up to date. Flipper zero. You can read more at flipper zero dot one. This is a $169 SDR, but what makes the flipper zero special is it's a portable multi-tool specifically designed for geeks and pen testers but it's all done on device. And so if you're the kind of person that loves radio protocols, access control, uh, and open source hardware, this is a device that you can play with. The idea is pretty simple. The Flipper Zero combines all of the hardware tools that you would need for ex- uh, exploration and development on the globe. The Flipper was designed uh, by a project, but unlike other do-it-yourself boards, the Flipper is designed with the convenience of everyday use in mind. So instead of needing, instead of being a device that you plug into your computer or that you pair with your smartphone or that you use with a tablet, everything you need is all built into the device. The case, the buttons, 
everything is is right there and so you don't have to connect anything you don't have to build anything you literally just turn the thing on and you start using it and essentially it's a hardware SDR that has a bunch of different software packages on it that can interact with different digital systems and so you can do something like I'll give you an example the uh, low frequency proximity card 125 kilohertz RFID card so you'll see these a lot if you ever see like the little HID readers a lot of times going into buildings or a lot of times into you know schools and so on and so forth access control those cards are ridiculously easy to duplicate it really doesn't take a whole lot there's an a whole lot of security in them. Now, to HID's credit, they have come out with a newer version of their technology uh, called the CEOs or something like that, and it actually does implement encryption. And so you have a private public key pair, just like you would expect with something like SSH, and that doesn't isn't subject to uh, these kinds of attacks. But the vast majority of these installations do not use uh, encrypted technology. It's all just plain weakened uh, RFID readers with 125 kilohertz credentials, and so. The Flipper Zero is a little device, a five-position directional keypad um, that will allow you to read a uh, 125 kilohertz card and then you can emulate it and so you can duplicate a card and go and open yourself up and access control you can read for example the RF uh, signal that comes off of a garage door remote and duplicate that it can also read EM4100 which if you have ever been to a hotel and had the little um, the little cards that you hold up to uh, the door and and those open those a lot of times will operate on the em4100 standards uh, as well as the hd proxy cards which we talked about so it, it allows you to do all of this stuff with one built-in device and it's 169 bucks so steve i know you're not a big uh, rf guy a big radio guy but is this something that you would ever consider playing with i mean throw it on the pile of all the other things that i might <laughs> like to take a peek at at one point sure I mean, at, at this point, I'm not sure that I have much need for something like this. Mm. Um, it's one of those things like if I could find a use case, like a compelling use case, then I'd surely take a look at it. But otherwise, uh, like everybody else, got to make choices in, in the, where I'm spending my time. And right now I don't have a compelling reason to, to look under this particular rock. My compelling reason is to play pranks on my friend Steve Evans at Southeast Linux Fest by getting into his hotel room by cloning his room key. Uh, you could do that, I suppose. <laughs> no, but this, what, what I like about it though, Steve is, so there is, there is, this technology has been around for a long time. And so there, there, there's nothing really new under the sun here insofar as Kevin Mitnick 10 years ago was giving presentations on how to duplicate these cards and you could buy the hardware and, and run it off of a laptop and do all these things. This is the first device that I've seen where everything is done on the freaking device and so you don't have to you don't have to install any software you don't have to connect it to anything which i think makes it particularly cool Cody 20.0 has been released you can learn more at Cody.tv. that's k-o-d-i.tv uh this version of Cody allows multiple instances of something called a binary add-on. So, for example, if you're using TV head-end, you can now run more than one instance of the add-on to connect to multiple uh, back-end instances of TV head-end servers with individual settings for each channel group um, maintained on per instance. They also are uh, increasing support for the AV1 uh, video support and will allow decoding of AV1 media. The input API has been updated to support AV1 and allows add-ons using input stream adaptive to play AV1 streams and then they reworked the subtitle system. So there's a massive rework of the subtitle system was undertaken by a user called at Casagna IT making subtle 
formats consistent for development and maintenance, as well as enabling features that were previously not possible. And Cody now supports dynamic positioning of fonts, changing the border, the background, colors, subtitle positioning, improved multi-language support, and more. So if you're regular users of subtitles, you'll definitely want to upgrade to version 20. Um, and I, I, it was funny, the, the way that this went in our house, we turned the TV on in our bedroom, Steve. Cody updates. We notice that it isn't the Matrix screen. It's a new screen for uh, for Cody. And we look at it, and my wife goes, you know what I love about this? Every time they update it, it's fine, whatever. They updated it, but everything is exactly the same. Like, once I get back into Cody, all the menus are exactly where I expected them to be. Every Nothing has changed from my perspective. And we've had Cody in our house for probably 10 years now, and... It's never changed. It's basically been the same since day one when I put it in. And that's exactly the way her and I like it. We, uh, we actually switched to very, very, very early on. There's a uh, theme called Confluence for okay. Cody. Um, and we switched to that so early on that when the, uh, when the Shield TV died in, my, in our bedroom the other, you know, a couple weeks ago, yeah. um, we installed Cody and we're like, why did Cody change? And we're like, oh, wait, it's because we've been using Confluence. Like you said, it updates and just puts the theme right back on uh-huh. as it was before. And so I, I've been using Cody since, oh, man, I, I have documents on Cody going back to 2009. And I've been using wow. this Confluence interface since then. So to me, uh, when I when I see a Cody that hasn't had... Uh, doesn't have confluence on them. Like, what did you do? What did you do? What did mm-hmm. you do to this? Why is it different? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you got it switched back over then. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I figured out what the issue was, like went downstairs to the other Cody box. I'm like, oh, that's why this is using something called confluence. I completely forgot that I installed this years ago. Do you have software on your computer that you've wondered, is it speaking out to the internet behind my back? Well, we have an article linked free in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Quote, while reading a blog post claiming that macOS X recently started scanning local files and reporting the information about them to Apple, even on a machine where all such callback features had been disabled, I came across a description of a little snitch program for macOS. It seemed to be a nice tool to have in the toolbox, and I decided to see if something like that existed for Linux. It didn't take long to come across... OpenSnitch, a package which has been development since 2017 and now available in version 1.5.0. It has a request for a Debian packaging since 2018, but nobody has completed the job so far, so it's really just for fun. I decided to see if it could help, and I was very happy to discover that the eps, uh, that the upstream want a Debian package too. And so uh, we've linked to the blog article that discusses OpenSnitch, but uh, this is really cool. If you've ever thought about... Uh, hey, I've been looking for something. I want to know what my computer is doing in the background and what it's sending to other places. This is an application that you could potentially put on there and keep track of it. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? I I was aware of this uh, some time ago. I th- I think this is kind of a neat uh, it's a neat diagnostics tool. I'm not sure that I'd run it all the time, but I definitely yeah. uh, when if I remembered, I would definitely put this on when I was troubleshooting. Part of it is if I had to wonder if it was reporting back out when I didn't want it to, I would start to rethink my choice to use that operating system in the first place, right? Like part of the reason I'm so happy on Linux is because for the most part, not that there aren't exceptions, for the most part, there's so many eyes paying attention to that stuff that even though the most minute thing comes up, like, hey, we're going to have the, you know this, this global search thing and we'll, if it can't find something locally, it'll go out to the internet and do a search. Even the most like minute thing that comes up, 
the internet explodes with information about it and you find out pretty quick. So I don't know. I don't I don't get terribly bent out of shape on, on the Linux side, but it's good to know that uh, a tool like that exists. KDE 5.27 beta is out. This is not for production, but if you want to go play with uh, the latest version of KDE, it's available and you can do so. They have uh, a number of improved things in, as it relates to tiling support. So if you're a tiling window manager or want to take advantage of some of those features that they implement, uh, check out KDE 5.27 and a OneDrive client is now available for Linux. It isn't an official uh, package from Microsoft, but it's called OneDrive GUI and it's GUI uh, for one for the OneDrive client to free Microsoft OneDrive client for Linux, which supports OneDrive Personal, OneDrive for Business and OneDrive for Office 365 and SharePoint. The GUI is fairly new with its first ever version being released in January of 2022, but it's already quite feature packed and includes the ability to configure and manage multiple OneDrive accounts with asynchronous real-time monitoring, selective sync, GUI-based login process system tray icons, and more. Uh, Tiny asks in our chat room, did either of you look at using Wiki built into CodeForge or GitLab as opposed to a dedicated Git repo before spinning up Wiki.js? So... GitLab actually is really heavy for for the use where Wiki.js is not. It's it's hmm. super lightweight and in terms of I run a local Git, but it is it's literally Git SSH. So mm-hmm. um, it it sits on a box that's like got 200 megs of RAM or something silly like that. Uh, so it was a lot of overhead to add GitLab just to be able to use its Wiki. Yeah, fair enough. And for me, really, what I it I, I I more or less relied on a lot of other people that have been evaluating wiki stuff for a long time, and have gone through and 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 done the research. And I just said, you know what? Really, what I'm looking for is a way to store Markdown files in a web UI, and Wiki.js absolutely checks that box, and it's worked really well ever since. So I've just kind of stuck there. But there wasn't, I uh, I wasn't unhappy with MediaWiki. I just prefer to write in Markdown when I can. Music in our ears means we're out of time. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We'd love for you to be a part of the live program. You can join us at AskNoahShow.com. You can check out the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow. Follow us on Twitter at Kernel Linux, at Linux Ovens. We'll see you you back next week, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. 